welcome to the DTP podcast for August 2018, volume 56, number 8. My name is Dave Fizakli, DTP's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month discusses an award-winning research paper. So, three questions. What was the award? What was the paper? And why is it important? So, this was the uh, so-called BUMPS study, BUMPS standing for Birth in Upright Maternal Position with Epidural in Second Stage. Uh, And this was a, a paper which was awarded the BMJ Research Paper of the Year 2018. And why, in particular, have we featured it? What does it tell us and some of the other significant features? Well, the issue here, this was a a very interesting study for a number of reasons. First of all, they managed to uh, get 41 delivery suites to get involved with the study, managed to recruit 3,000 women in the late stage of delivery and randomise them either to deliver in the upright maternal position, which a lot of proponents of natural childbirth might suggest is the best one because gravity helps deliver the baby but compare that with the recumbent position and the significant issue here is that it looks as if the recumbent position actually was better than the upright and what was the outcome so if you looked at sort of spontaneous the instance of spontaneous vaginal delivery which was the outcome they were interested in you had 41 percent of women who were delivering in the recumbent position achieve that versus 35% in the upright position. For those that like the number needed to to treat um, figures, you needed to have uh, 17 women to lie rather than stand for one more successful vaginal delivery. But as far as when we looked at this, this message hasn't yet seem to be widely disseminated. No, this is always the disappointing thing about something, you know, as important as this. Even the various um, organisations that are meant to push out this sort of information to practitioners um, haven't yet really got hold of this. So we looked at the NIHR website, which is meant to disseminate good information to clinicians, and they haven't included this, for example, in their on their website. So still some work to do to promote this and to uh, raise its profile. Indeed. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article this month tackles malnutrition, screening for malnutrition and the provision of nutrition support. And I suppose we've gone for a particular focus on oral nutritional supplements. So big topic. What are some of the key issues and highlights? Yes, uh, uh, this is a big uh, topic, and I think many GPs listening to this will uh, groan quietly internally because I think for them, nutritional supplementation has been a difficult thing for them over the years. Issues around how to prescribe it correctly, but also issues around is it effective, when should I use it, all those sorts of things. So we look at all this in the article and we approach it in our typical DTB way, making sure that we really try and uncover the evidence behind this rather than just uh, looking at what perhaps the consensus suggests we should be doing. I suppose one thing struck me was the lack of evidence for screening. It's significant, nice advises screening, and yet if you look at the nice full guidance, you discover that actually they, they looked for any evidence for screening. They just found three very poor quality trials that looked at that. None of them really demonstrated any benefit of screening, but they used a consensus basis to determine that they felt that screening was a sensible option. And then once you have screened, we talk a little bit about 
tools that you might use for screening. That's right. So the must tool, which I think a lot of uh, people will, will have heard about, is, is certainly one that's validated compared to other ones. And we look at that and, um, and then really deal with the, the thorny issue of what should you do then if you have someone who is malnourished because there's no doubt about it you know we don't want to belittle the issue around malnourishment being related to increased hospital attendances depression increased infections delayed wound healing so uh, malnutrition is a major issue the difficulty here i think is that it's too easy sometimes to reach for the prescription pad and prescribe something rather than actually deal with the underlying cause of the malnutrition and we do talk about some of the other interventions that are recommended in terms of food fortification, um, simpler dietary advice before you reach for the... Exactly, and managing the contributory factors, you know, is it to do with denture fitting? Is it the fact that no one's spending time with the patient to help them eat? Is it around medication they're taking? Are there other issues, constipation, alcohol? All those sorts of things you need to deal with first if you're going to get on top of this problem. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article reviews licensing of medicines and in particular a focus on a range of new initiatives to either speed up or increase access to new medicines. So we're all familiar with the traditional licensing model and we, we briefly recap on that. But what are the, some of the examples of the new interventions? We yes, and I think we should start by saying this is not one of our most exciting articles, but I think it's it's very important because I think most jobbing clinicians just think that a drug goes through a very standard process before it comes to be authorised to be on the market and to be marketed and for you to use it on your prescription pad. And the plethora now of ways that drugs can be authorised is enormous and these sometimes it's important to understand that because it will sometimes mean that the accelerated pathway that's been taken means that stages in the development of that drug have perhaps been not so much missed but perhaps come in at a different time so we talk about orphan designation so this is a plan that allows drugs which look after or help improve a chronic uh, debilitating or life-threatening condition where the prevalence is very very low pitolescent for narcolepsy is an example and these drugs have an accelerated pathway through um, the marketing authorization and then get also increased market exclusivity and perhaps reduced fees during that process. We looked at other ones as well obviously the UK has early access to medicine scheme the EAMS scheme which started in 2014. The idea behind that is you get medication being used free of charge by the NHS during a year if the early clinical data is uh, promising and then nice appraises the drug for routine use after that time and prembolizumab is an example of that. And there are all kinds of ways that, particularly on oncology drugs, the uh, European Medicines Agency and the MHRA more locally are trying to help drugs uh, get to patients more quickly. Any pitfalls that we identify? Well, I think, you know, drug DTB's uh, natural conservative feeling about drugs and, you know, the issue that there's no such thing as a safe drug, only safe clinicians, I think does, you know, we are we are nervous about these sorts of things. The anal- there was an analysis done of all EMA drugs, um, oncology drugs between 2009 and 2013 that were approved by the European Medicines Agency. And they found that... 
Most have been approved without any demonstrated benefit um, to quality of life or survival. And when you accelerate marketing authorization in this way, often you use surrogate endpoints like tumor progression, and that's been demonstrated to be poorly correlated with survival. So in fact, uh, in that analysis, after 3.3 years, they had not able to demonstrate any of those oncology drugs had improved uh, survival. So there is a concern that we're pushing drugs through and then actually later on discovering they don't really offer much benefit. So you're absolutely right to try and increase access and speed up to really life-saving or innovative medicines that are going to make a difference, but we do need to hold the regulators to account to make sure that when they're giving a maybe a conditional license that they go back and follow up on the data. And this is it, and, and it's not just the uh, regulatory authorities. Pharma sometimes seem to drag their heels rather, so it can be up to seven years before they might fulfil the certain obligations, you know, information they should be producing post-marketing for conditional market, market authorization. So th- there is a real need, I think, for organisations like the ISDB to really police this area and make sure that uh, drugs remain safe. Now, of course, all this is based on the current process. What we have yet to establish is what happens once we Brexit and the impact on licensing, the role of EMA and MHRA. And perhaps that's something we need to come back and look at in a future issue. I'm sure we will. And on a final note, this is our final version of DTP in its current incarnation. More news on this next month, but any sneak preview of what's changing? Well, all I would say is those who still receive the the paper copy, it will not be read. I mean, I hope you will read it, but it will not be the colour red when it comes to your letterbox next month. Um, I'm not going to tell you what colour it's going to be, um, <laughs> but uh, it will change. Formats changed. We're also moving towards authored pieces. This, The plan behind this is to really try and make the content even more useful to you as a clinician, uh, whatever specialty you work in and wherever you work within the NHS or beyond, but also to give us a bigger profile because increasingly now search engines look for authors and they won't accept anonymous articles in the same way. So this is a way of really making sure that we maintain our profile and remain one of the most important places to go for really truly independent uh, medical advice. Excellent and more about that to follow. So to read these and any of our articles please visit our website at ddb.bmj.com.